You're listening to One More Decision, a short update from the team that brings you One Decision, the podcast that looks at the big choices shaping our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane, journalist and broadcaster. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of Britain's Secret Intelligence Service. I'm delighted to say we're also joined today by Secretary Leon Panetta, the former Secretary of Defence and CIA Director under President Obama. Now, it is a great thing that we have both gentlemen on the podcast today because there's been quite a lot of news coming out of Russia. Late on Wednesday night, it seemed that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Mercenary Group and leader of the failed mutiny against Putin earlier this year, has appeared to have finally run out of luck. Reports that he was on the passenger list of a private jet that exploded in the air somewhere between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Now, there's been a lot of news dribbling out in the last day, but the big news we've heard is that Putin has finally broken his silence, releasing a video statement earlier. He says, I knew Prigozhin for a long time from the early 1990s. He had a difficult path and made some serious mistakes in his life. But he got results for himself and when I asked him. Putin also went on to send condolences to Prigozhin's family for their loss. I started the discussion with our two esteemed former spy chiefs today by asking Secretary Panetta, first of all, to rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how sincere he thought Putin was being in those tributes to Yevgeny Prigozhin, his old protégé. Well, for those of us, uh, Sir Richard and I, who come out of the intelligence world, this pretty much follows Putin's playbook for most of his life. This is uh, Putin is a former KGB agent. His basic approach is that if he's crossed, you know, you'll pay with your life, either by poisonings or people throwing out windows or other means. And so I think one way or another, I mean, we don't have all the facts, obviously, at this point, but there's no question in my mind that uh, Putin uh, was responsible for what happened here. And uh, therefore, if I'm right, when he takes to the airwaves to uh, deliver condolences to uh, the family, etc. He's only doing that because uh, he knows that Prigozhin and uh, the Wagner Group had a lot of support in Russia. And I think he's trying to see what he can do to try to modify that kind of support, sympathize with it, and indicate that uh, somehow he was not responsible for something that I think without question, he was responsible for. Richard, Secretary Panetta has brought up something really, really important, which is the difficult line that Putin now has to tread. Now, this has happened. And I want to ask about that. But before we do, I just want to go on to what we know about what exactly, what physically has happened. And there are conflicting reports. The Russians are carrying out an investigation on this now. But In the initial hours after the attack, we saw on Wagner-affiliated telegram channels claiming that there were sounds of two explosions, some thoughts that it was perhaps a surface-to-air missile, and some speculation on this because the plane's trajectory apparently went close to a residence of President Putin's where he is known to have air defences around. However, there are also reports 
that surfaced the next day, which seemed to involve a possible bomb being smuggled on board, apparently in a crate of wine. That's not confirmed, but that is something that is going around certain Russian circles. Those are rumors that are being spread worldwide. Uh, No matter how the plane was brought down, whether by missile or a bomb on board, Either way, this was a very public assassination. This wasn't a a poisoning in the stomach. This wasn't a drug that mimicked the symptoms of a heart attack. These are methods that we know the Russians have the capability to do so. This was a very, very public explosion in the sky. So what do you think, first of all, that that tells us? Well, it doesn't tell us much more than it tells us. And sorry, that's a rather banal answer. (laughs) What I would say is that I very much doubt that the aircraft was shot down by, um, as it were, a missile defence system, because mm. there has to be an element of deniability in an assassination. And, you know, that little bit of doubt, I mean, you know, we all conclude that Putin planned this and did it, but if it's a bomb on the plane, then, you know, that requires an investigation and you know, there'll be an element of doubt as to who was responsible. Someone can allege it, what, another of Prigozhin's enemies. So there are all sorts of alternatives. So I, I would almost bet on the fact that it was a bomb on the aircraft rather than a missile defence system. That's the first thing I would say. Of course, the other issue is if you blow up the plane. I mean, there were other important Wagner individuals on the aircraft, so you get rid of the whole lot in one go. So that's pretty definitive too. And the third thing I would say is that, you know, if you look at this in a historical context, Russian leaders or rulers going way back, but let's not go back further than the communist uh, revolution uh, of 1917-1918, have always bumped off, you know, their serious opponents one way or another. Go back, you know, what did Lenin do to Trotsky. Um, And in a way, one has not a dissimilar situation here. And there's a whole history of Russian leaders uh, murdering or assassinating their opponents. I mean, interestingly, Russians tend to do it to other Russians more than they do it to foreigners. But the history of the 20th century of Russia is littered with assassinations. So this Mm. sits right in the centre of the traditions of brutal leadership and rulership, whether it's Soviet Russia or post-Soviet Russia or Putin's Russia. And, you know, there have been a string of suspicious deaths in Mm. Putin's time. I mean, there are 13 unexplained Russian oligarchs who passed away in inverted commas in, in strange circumstances in London, you know, which have not allegedly all been thoroughly investigated because some of them looked as though they may have been natural causes. So I don't think we should be surprised at all by what's happened. And I think there is another point to make, you know, almost certainly Prigozhin is dead, but we don't know that 100%. I think the evidence is pointing to a sort of 95% resolution. But are we all being misled? Uh, You know, many, many questions arise. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that the most likely explanation is a bomb on board. Operationally, that's far easier to carry out, particularly on a small plane departure that's on Russian soil. I mean, the US government's preliminary assessments are that it's most likely that it was a bomb exploding on the aircraft rather than 
some kind of anti-aircraft missile being fired off mid-flight. Secretary Panetta, Putin was clearly sending a message, and we do know that he does not take traitors lightly. But of course, this comes a few months after Prigozhin led this failed mutiny and challenged his authority directly. Why didn't Putin respond back then? I mean, surely the real show of strength would have been to crush Prigozhin when his authority was being directly challenged. Instead, Putin sort of, you know, shook hands with Prigozhin. They sort of ended that mutiny amicably. And for revenge to have been served cold, as it were, a few months later when Prigozhin was on an aircraft, that doesn't really scream power, does it? I mean, if Putin was really in control, he would have squished him like a fly in the midst of the mutiny, would he not? There's no question that I think uh, standing back and looking at the events of the last two months, and and by the way, it was two months exactly to the date that the uh, coup took place, uh, which Mm. is Putin always pays attention to his uh, anniversaries of one kind or another. Um, Very true. The fact that there was the coup and uh, Prigozhin uh, was within 120 miles of Moscow threatening Putin. And the fact that Putin probably faced the most serious threat to his power in the 23 years that he's been in office, and the fact that uh, Putin called him treasonous at the time. It was clearly a sign of weakness at the time that somebody had to negotiate a resolution to this in Belarus and uh, that Putin did not take uh, direct action. On the other hand, when you think about it, Prigozhin is popular. Prigozhin was being very critical of the Russians uh, and what they were doing, particularly in the Ukraine. And uh, there's no question in my mind that there was support for Prigozhin among some of the right-wing circles in Moscow. And for that reason, I think uh, Putin decided in some ways he had to tread lightly here because if he moved quickly, that it might uh, reverberate against him and uh, he might face even more problems in Moscow. So I think he kind of deliberately took the approach of standing back and catering to Prigozhin and trying to get him to get comfortable and basically not put him in a position where he felt that perhaps he had avoided uh, the kind of uh, immediate assassination uh, that's taken place in the past, uh, as Sir Richard has defined. So there are two things here. One, Putin was weakened by what happened. Putin was nervous about what had taken place. Thirdly, uh, he wanted to be careful uh, not to create greater problems for himself. And fourthly, he does, as a matter of course, as this former KGB agent, always wants to have people get comfortable and uh, not feel like they're threatened. Uh, Otherwise, Mm -hmm. precaution would be taking steps to try to avoid any kind of assassination, which I'm probably sure he was trying to do anyway. But this all fits the the pattern that we've seen from Mm -hmm. Putin. He took his time. Precaution did get more comfortable. He was meeting with Putin. And ultimately, Putin took advantage of that in order to assassinate him and the other leaders of Wagner. Yeah, I mean, but he was in the Kremlin recently. He was shaking hands with African leaders just a few weeks ago in the Kremlin. I mean, if he wasn't sort of 
off his guard then when he's literally in Putin's house. I mean, I do think this is being assassinated in a plane in the sky. There is a public drama there that does send an unmistakable message. This question is for either of you, gents. The other thing that has changed since the mutiny, well, two things. First of all, the Rosgardia, the, the Russian National Guard, which is around 200,000 personnel strong, and it was created by Putin in 2016. It's headed by his former bodyguard. And their purpose is really to protect the, the Russian leadership. They have been given heavy weaponry and they have been strengthened in the weeks since the mutiny. The other thing that has happened is Sergei Surovikin, who was an old army chief, he uh, who appeared to potentially side or, or show support with Prigozhin, he was sacked on Wednesday, the same day that Prigozhin's plane exploded in the sky. But he's also been sort of missing from public view ever since the mutiny. So those are two key things that have happened since the mutiny and so could potentially be relevant to the timing of all this. What's the relevance of those two events? The, the beefing up of the Rosgardia, the sacking of Surovikin, this is Putin clearly trying to shore up his position. Does that mean that the security of his position is one that is, is very clearly in question? Well, I, I think that one of the lessons of the mutiny is it was clear at the time that the Russian military didn't really oppose the Wagner group in the initial stages of them you know, mounting this extraordinary action. And there's no question that there was sympathy within bits of the military leadership. That shot of Prigozhin when he was in the South, sitting down with the two leading generals, chatting with them amicably. And there's no question when the Wagner sort of column left the war theatre and headed north towards Moscow, it's pretty clear from what I've heard, that the road to Moscow was not defended, that mm. the cupboard in Moscow was pretty bare. Putin panicked and made that extraordinary uh, speech on television, and things, you know, were going very, very badly. And I think almost proof of this is that Surovikin is one of the decent generals that the Russian military had, and who is actually, I think, responsible for having built this defensive line along the division between, you know, Russian and Ukrainian troops, which is proving so difficult for the Ukrainians to break, has now been booted out. Oh, that looks as though he's been sacked. So, I mean, things are difficult for Putin at the moment. And, I mean, you know, when, remember, he's assassinated someone from his inner circle. When they start killing each other, you know that they've got real problems. And uh, although you could say this is a reassertion, of Putin's authority. On the other hand, I would say it's indicative of the weakness of his position as well. It cuts both ways. And I think he has got some serious problems in terms of trust for the military. And this um, Russian National Guard sort of protection like a Praetorian Guard, it's not a very large organization and it's no match for the Russian military. So the questions, you know, in Putin's mind must be, you know, his vulnerabilities, I think. And this is a pretty desperate measure, but one that we all expected, you know, where he rubs out Prigozhin. I'm sure that Leon's got observations on that as well. <laughs> mm. Secretary Panetta, where does this leave the war in Ukraine? Because this now leaves it very much firmly in the hands of 
Valery Gerasimov and Sergei Shoigu running the operation, whereas Prigozhin was commanding some of the key areas, spearheading with his mercenaries some of the key battlegrounds, and was doing very well. It was Wagner mercenaries who finally took Butcher, who were responsible for some of the key advancements. Valery uh, Gerasimov and Sergei Shoigu, they're kind of the two Ronnies, really, of, of the Russian army. Actually, I don't know if over in America you'll get that reference, that these two almost comedic sort of buffoons who are really quite uh, incompetent, blundering around. What do you think Prigozhin's absence and the demoralization, perhaps, on the troops will have on the Russian war effort, given that he was well respected by a lot of soldiers in the Russian army, not just among mercenaries? All of this uh, uh, reflects, I think, on uh, what Sir Richard concluded, which is uh, a Putin who is in trouble. He's been weakened. Weakened by the decision to go into the Ukraine, weakened by the way the Russian military has handled that offensive, that uh, invasion, weakened by the fact that there are so many deaths that have taken place and so many wounded. There's no question that there's a tremendous amount of demoralization uh, within uh, Moscow about what's happening in the Ukraine. And Prokoshin made it his credo that uh, mm-hmm. of criticizing uh, what what was happening, uh, what was happening to the Russians, what was happening with regards to their failure. And I think that right now, because Putin has to focus on all of these weaknesses that are occurring, and the fact that I would not be surprised, very frankly, uh, this Wagner group was very loyal to Prigozhin, extremely mm-hmm. In addition, there were right-wing supporters in Moscow who are very close to Prigozhin. That I think Putin has to worry a great deal about his own personal safety at this point. Imagine having uh, the kind of loyalty that Prigozhin demanded, and suddenly he gets killed in this kind of assassination. There's no question that there are elements of the Wagner group that are not going to take lightly to this. And I think... Putin has to worry, which means that it's going to detract from his focus on whatever's happening uh, or not happening in the Ukraine. I think this is probably a moment in time, if I were in the Ukraine, where I would take advantage of uh, the kind of disruption that has just occurred. Right. The Russians have been primarily concentrated the last sort of six, seven months on defense, on strengthening their defenses, on mining the heck out of the places they currently hold. This assassination is really not going to favor the Russian war effort because now Putin has to sort of have one eye on securing his position at home as well as one eye on Ukraine. I mean, the Ukrainians this week have been sort of I don't know if celebrating is the right word. Prigozhin is a sort of, he's really an evil man towards them. He is responsible for some really brutal executions of Russian defectors who've been handed back to Russia in prisoner swaps. He's been commanding troops who've been accused of of crimes against humanity on, on the ground. They are sort of celebrating his death. But Zelensky, he said something was quite amusing. He's quite witty at times. He said, when we've been asking the West for planes, this isn't quite what we meant. Um, but he then went on to say, no, 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 this, this wasn't anything to do with us, even if it is, um, you know, something that 
That is quite good. And and also interesting that, you know, you said that Putin pays attention to anniversaries. It's also Ukraine's National Independence Day today. I don't know what relevance that happens to be. But certainly the Ukrainians are, are pleased that, that he's gone and they must think that this is something that is in their favour. Yeah, bear in mind also with the Wagner Group that, you know, they were one of the agencies that Putin could use to conduct, you know, grey warfare more broadly. Mm. And the role of the Wagner Group in the Sahel region in Africa, where you've got, you know, Mali, Burkina Faso, now Niger, inclining mm. towards the Russians rather than, you know, their West former Western allies. I mean, it's possible, given, you know, Prigozhin's disappearance, that without leadership, you know, this option is not going to be as easily exploited by Putin as has been in the past. In my view, what's happening in Niger at the moment, which is relevant, it was a very significant way for, you know, Russia to get at Macron and you know, destabilize French interests in a broader venue. So there are all sorts of dimensions, some of which mm. are internal to Russia's Leon's prescribed, but it goes more broadly than that. And uh, I think it does indicate that there's some really profound problems inside mm. the Kremlin now. It's not just this Putin's, uh, the original mutiny. There, there's a lot which is, let's say, fragile. It's very brittle, in my opinion. You know, things could snap and things could change pretty rapidly looking ahead. I think it's really important for everyone to remember that uh, Putin created this monster. Uh, he, he's the one who empowered Prigozhin. He's the one who empowered the Wagner Group. Uh, he's the one who supported uh, the Wagner Group and the different exploits. And uh, there's no question that Prigozhin, in many ways, was a thug and a war criminal, along with the Wagner Group. And now it's come back to basically threaten uh, Putin himself. He created a monster that now uh, threatened him. And so the message that went out is a message that, you know, Putin has made clear that he is going to take action against those who would threaten him. That's the message. I mean, after all, I think it was the Russian media, the Russian authorities who first announced uh, what had happened here. And they almost did it with almost a semblance of comfort that it had happened. Mm. <laughs> so it was clearly something the Russians wanted to take some pride in, that in mm. fact Putin had taken vengeance against Pogoshin. Uh, I... And that's a message that obviously Putin can send out, but it can also backfire against him as well. I want to just quickly go back to something Richard said, which was what Wagner have been doing in Africa. And I think it's important because there's billions, billions and billions of dollars at stake. Wagner was making some serious money, not just, you know, they weren't just doing well in Ukraine and spreading their tentacles everywhere. They were actually making serious money in Africa, partnering with a lot of states, running a lot of mines, taking very lucrative cuts from a lot of this going on in a number of countries in Africa. Now, with Prigozhin gone, how are those operations likely to continue? Because, the, you know, he managed this extraordinarily well. He was running a very successful business empire. His mercs were very loyal to him. He paid them very well. You can't say that the same thing about Russian conscripts. And this was a very lucrative stream 
for the Russians at a time when the ruble is really flatlining and in trouble. We've seen the Russian central bank making moves to try and shore up the Russian economy. So not only is there a lot of sort of visual optics and brass politics at stake for Putin and a semblance of being in control, there is also hard cash at stake as well at a time when his economy is not doing so well. Again, I think that Putin used uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group to extend his influence into Africa and to be able to support those autocrats in Africa who were asserting uh, their own control and making money out of the deal, uh, getting diamonds, getting gold, getting other things that they felt they were entitled to. Now, the Wagner Group is there. I think the Russians will try to assert control over the Wagner fighters. Whether they're successful or not is a question, because Mm. uh, these people have just lost a leader that they were very loyal to, and Mm. that uh, they felt uh, was providing the kind of leadership they needed in order to do their mission. To have the Russians now try to take control of that group is not going to be easy. And so what's going to happen here is, and I agree with Sir Richard, I was worried about what was happening in Niger. I was worried about what was happening in some of these other countries uh, as Russia was trying to expand its influence. I think this is a moment in time, very frankly, where uh, the allies, the United States and others, need to take advantage of this moment to make sure that Russia does not fully exploit taking advantage of what's happened. Both China and Russia are trying to take advantage of this moment in Africa. I think it's a moment, frankly, where we're going to have to organize ourselves and our allies to make sure that we are providing a counterforce there that can try to move them in a better direction. Yeah, I agree with Leon on that in particular. I mean, Niger is turning into something of a test case for the West. You could say it's not a particularly important country, but you know, sometimes these issues crystallize around one crisis. And, you know, Niger is important because there's a large French military contingent there. It's important to the US as a base for fighting Islamist extremism in the area. And there's a significant US contingent there. It's clearly of huge concern to the African Union and ECOWAS. And all of these interests can join. And I mean, if the Wagner Group are leaderless, if their sort of hot paychecks are threatened by a massive decrease in income, I think this could be quite a trigger. But the point is you need a unified, clear response from the West. And Mm -hmm. it's not clear to me yet what's going to happen in Niger, whether the Nigerians really are going to become an agency for forcing the sort of echo was to intervene militarily. But, you know, it just might be the moment when this is appropriate, because to lose control of Niger, I think, is going to be a rather crucial development in that part of Africa. And of course, it's not unconnected with what's happening in the Ukraine war. It's, it's absolutely clear to me that there's a, there is a direct link. Well, with regard to this assassination or this potential assassination of Geni Prigozhin, I'm I'm actually less interested in the response from the West than I am with the response from China. Richard, what do you think President Xi Jinping might be thinking as 
Putin becomes more and more unabashedly the leader of a mafia state with these kinds of mob tactics. Now, President Xi Jinping, he's no stranger to snuffing out his political allies, but he does them in a, with a little more sort of etiquette. You know, with Bojolai, there was a corruption case. He's in jail. He didn't sort of blow him up in the sky like this. He at least tries to appear to play it a little more straight-laced by the rules. He is someone who is very publicly concerned with corruption. He's someone who's very publicly concerned with you know, territorial sovereignty. What do you think he makes of what is going on in Moscow? He's obviously tied himself to Putin, but do you think he, at any point in all of this disarray, is going to start getting buyer's remorse? Is he going to feel like Putin is such a loose cannonball that it's actually less in his interest to be affiliated with such a gangster for a president? Well, I think my interpretation is that uh, Xi Jinping is supping with a lengthening spoon <laughs> and he's not too keen to be over closely associated with Putin. Obviously, you know, we haven't seen a clear break between the two countries. We're not going to see that. But I think we're going to see nuances in Chinese policy, which betrays a sort of concern on China's part about the contamination that Putin's regime will create for China if the relationship is seen to be too close and too integrated. Uh, and there's no question that, okay, we all know that Xi Jinping can behave in the most autocratic, repressive fashion. But on the other hand, since the 20th Party Congress, there are some signs that diplomatically they've been uh, inclined to behave with a little more decorum and restraint on issues like asserting their claims in the South China Sea. Uh, and I mean, for example, the British Foreign Secretary cleverly has just been or is in Beijing or just been to Beijing. I don't think we've had any reports on that yet. I don't think that would mm -hmm. have taken place without some signal from China that, um, let's say, they're maybe moderating their expressions of support for Putin and being pretty cautious and pretty careful. And I mean, the other thing which I think is key for Xi Jinping, the Chinese economy, as we now discovered over the last two or three months, is in one hell of a mess. And Chinese as it were, development depends very heavily on its success in global trade. And I think that Xi Jinping right at the moment needs to worry about China's image as an international trader more than as an ally of Putin. So there are all sorts of reasons why he might be treading very much more carefully. But I'm sure Leon has got views on that too. I think Sir Richard is correct that she is being very cautious about ties with Russia. He saw how the war has gone. He saw the impact on Putin of the coup that took place. And very frankly, he knows that he's got to keep a hands-off approach to Russia. He doesn't want Putin to come down. He doesn't want to uh, create in a greater instability there. But at the same time, he also doesn't want to create the same enemies that Putin has created. And therefore, I think, you know, for the West, it's important, obviously, to try to see if we can take advantage of opportunities for dialogue, uh, try to see if we can work a little more with uh, China and try to prevent China 
from becoming another threat to uh, to Taiwan and to the South China Sea and become, in a way, the destabilizing force that Russia became in Ukraine. I think she wants to avoid that right now. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.